The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church, and I'm really glad to be, um, to be with you here today. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to go ahead and open it to Exodus chapter 19. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in, in the seatbacks in front of you that'll be in the same translation that I use. And if you need a large print Bible, they are in the back on the table back there, and you can grab one of those um, to use. Exodus is the second book of the Bible right after Genesis, so it should be easy for you to find uh, this morning. If you have any questions about our message time, I would encourage you to send a text to the number that's on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. And then on Tuesdays at 11.15, we go into our church Facebook page and we answer those. I think I say this every week. You don't have to be on Facebook in order to, to access that. You can just go to our, our church website, westwaychurch.com, and it's in the media um, file, media slot on there. So about two weeks ago, we got a call from, from Anne's family in Sioux Falls that her, that her dad was ending his chemo treatments and was going home for for in-home hospice. This was on Monday, two weeks ago. So our initial plan was to was to go up there was to go up there on Friday, and in the course of conversation, um, it just so happened that that one of Anne's sisters was with the doctor, and the doctor said, "Do you have any questions?" And 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 the doctor said, or Anne's sister said, "Yeah, the family's coming on Friday," and then the doctor said. Well, if they want to talk to Alan, they need to be here sooner than that. So, so we made the decision uh, that, uh, to leave early that Wednesday morning. We arrived about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and her dad was, um, he was awake. He was excited to see us. We got about 10 minutes with him, and then he, and then he went to sleep. And about 2.55... Um, that night, so Thursday morning, Ann sent me a text and said, hey, I, um, she was up with her dad. She said, hey, I think you need to come up here. And went upstairs, and we gathered some of the other family members that were there. Um, and within about five minutes, um, he, he passed away. He died. And I just, I think what a, what a glorious ending to a life lived in pursuit of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing thing to be a part of, um, and it was it was heavy. There was a lot going on, and it it wasn't just Jesus that got us through that, um, but it was it was you, our church body, and we want to just thank you um, for all of your all of your texts and Facebook messages and phone calls and letters and gifts and envelopes uh, when we got home. Um, and, and really, more than any of those things, thank you for the ability for us to be away for, um, for eight days. Because um, it was an unexpected eight days to be away, and we are appreciative of a church body that allows, that allows us that freedom. Um, we appreciate your love and your concern um, for us. 
And last Sunday, while you were hearing a message here about going deeper and not being satisfied with the shallow things of faith, I was hearing a message about one of the great lies that Christians tell. And here's, and here's that lie. The lie is God will never give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've said that before, but it's not true. Truth is found in 2 Corinthians 1, and this is Paul. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying upon ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. See, God will give us more than we can handle. He will allow us to engage with more than we can handle so that we would come to the end of ourselves, so that we would stop relying upon ourselves. And it's this hope that that Christians cling to. This is a reality that we grasp. We will be overwhelmed. And what we need is someone other than ourselves to lead us where we can't go. We need someone other than ourselves to come alongside us and whether, whether we're dealing with the realities of death or just the hardships of life, we, we need an objective reality. Something besides ourselves, separate from us to lead us and guide us. And that's a really good start to what we're going to talk about today with the Ten Commandments. You'll see what I'm about to read next in your, in your bulletin notes. In 2014, there was an online contest called the Ten Non-Commandments Contest. There were 2,800 submissions, and there were 13 judges who selected the 10 winners. And you'll find these in your bulletin. I'm going to read them. Here are the 10 non-commandments that were chosen as winners. So again, these are user-submitted. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control of their body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, this one's my personal favorite. There is no right way to live. One right way to live. Number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Well, if we fast forward five years, this is the perfect moral code for for our generation. And if you take a moment, you'll see that it is filled with contradictions. So, for example, number five says that God is completely unnecessary, but number seven is based upon the words of who? Jesus. The scientific method, number three, while indeed thousands of years old, gained popularity because Presbyterian and Reformed theologians saw Francis Bacon's method of inductive reasoning as valuable as a good way to make observations of the natural world. What's more, they're called non-commandments, so, so they won't sound commandment, commandment-ish, right? They won't sound quite so bossy, but each one of them sounds quite morally superior, doesn't it? 
And then my favorite one, number nine. How can we be told to leave the planet a better place? How can we be told to think of others and to exercise control over ourselves if there is no one right way to live? Seems as though the people that created this survey would have us gather our moral code from those around us. But even they couldn't agree, so they had to find 13 people to pick the top 10. Crowdsourcing is not always the best way to go about things. A few years ago, the British government uh, had this online contest to name a $287 million polar research vessel. Names like Ernest Shackleton and Endeavor and Falcon were suggested. And I'm seeing Jen Dillinger back there laughing because I think she's probably heard this story. So Ernest Shackleton, Endeavor, Falcon was suggested. And you know what the runaway winner was in this competition for the naming of this $287 million boat? Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> that was the number one winner. Bodie McBoatface. Last year we talked a lot about Francis Schaeffer. In his book, The Christian Manifesto, he writes this. We live in a secularized society and in secularized sociological law. By sociological law, we mean law that has no fixed base, but law in which a group of people decides what is sociologically good for society at the given moment. And what they arbitrarily decide becomes law. So sociological law is what gave the white man the right to break treaties with the indigenous people of the United States. Sociological law is what allowed Franklin Roosevelt to intern more than 120,000 Japanese American citizens during World War II. Sociological law allowed there to be separate drinking fountains for whites and blacks. Sociological law is responsible for no-fault divorce. Sociological law is responsible for abortion. Sociological law is responsible for giving gender non-conforming children puberty blockers and hormone treatments without parental consent. This is, this is what we get. These are examples of the things that we get when we function in a society governed by sociological law. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why were any of these things wrong? At the end of the day, why were they wrong? On what basis can we say it was wrong to imprison 120,000 Japanese-American citizens during World War II? What, how can we argue against that? In every instance, there was someone or a group of someone who decided that they were correct for that time. They were just Bodie McBoatface on a much grander scale. So we must ask ourselves, what is our moral code? What are our rules to live by? Where does this concept of moral code, of moral law, even come from? Well, for that, we have to go back thousands of years to a guy by the name of Abram in the Old Testament. He lived in a 
city community called Ur, located in modern-day Iraq. And at that time, there were tons of gods, and they controlled everything. They controlled the crops. They controlled the wind. They controlled the rain. They controlled the day. They controlled the night. They were gods galore. And one day, one of these gods, who doesn't even bother to identify himself, by the way, appears to Abram in Genesis 12, and he says this, I'm going to make you into a great nation, blessing you and making you famous, a blessing to others. This is, this is the language of identity, and it matters greatly. The next 38 chapters of the book of, of Genesis are this, are this reorientation. There aren't many gods, There's just one. And when he finally identifies himself as the Lord, it's 24 years later in Abram's life, and he self-identifies as El Shaddai, God Almighty. And the book of Exodus begins with Abraham's relatives, not a mighty nation, not a great nation, but an enslaved nation. They certainly weren't blessed, and the only people that they were blessing were their Egyptian slave masters. And this same God, the Lord, appears to Moses to tell him that he has heard the cries of his people and that they will be rescued through Moses and that he would lead them to the long-promised promised land, that they would gather in this place and have it as an inheritance. And two months later, they they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses climbs the mountain. And this is Exodus 19, beginning at verse 3. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. God is not just telling them who he is but he's telling them who they are. And what he offers is an agreement. He offers them a covenant. In return for acceptance of him as their God, they would receive an identity. They would be known as something. They would be known as a special treasure, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. And their acceptance was indicated by their obedience to his rules. That's how he would know that they were allowing him, accepting him as leader. So what are these rules? Let's go to Genesis chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must have... You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. 
You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire families affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Notice the very first thing God says here. He says, I'm the one who delivered you from Egypt where you were enslaved. In one single sentence, in that one sentence, God identifies who he is and who gets to make the rules for their relationship. Because if it were not for him, they would still be enslaved in Egypt. Thomas Cahill puts it this way. They, the Ten Commandments, require no justification, nor can they be argued away. They're not dependent on circumstances, nor may they be set aside because of special consideration. They're not propositions for debate. They're not suggestions. They're not ten challenges. They're exactly what they seem to be. And there is no getting around them or out from under them. But the only thing new about them is their articulation at this moment amid the terrifying fires at Sinai. Each of these commandments speak of obedience without qualification. And at least one of these commandments is completely unenforceable. And while these commandments are contextual, they, they fit in a time and in a place they are not sociological in nature. The first four are God-oriented, focusing on the relationship between God and man. And the second six, the last six, are man-oriented. They talk about and they deal with how man is to treat one another. And each one of these commands are predicated, are based on the identity of the giver. Again, what does God say? I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So God gets to make the rules for those that want to be his people. God makes the rules, not them. Centuries earlier, this same God called Father Abraham out of Ur with the idea of giving Abraham and his people an identity. They had been his long before they knew it. 
Their identity, in fact, was the reason behind their rescue. In Exodus chapter 2, we read this. Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. They cried for help and God heard their cry. Reminded of John chapter 10 where Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. This past week while we were in Sioux Falls, our children were all there. Even one of our grandchildren, Grayson, was there. And he has like this, he has this, just this sweet, recognizable little voice. And the reason that it was identifiable is because we FaceTime him about every other day. Because we've talked with him dozens of times. And he knew exactly who we were. Except he, both, he calls both Ann and I Grandpa. We're working on that one. <laughs> See, God rescued his people because of their identity as his people. They didn't, they didn't claim this for themselves. God named them and God claimed them because of who he was, not because of who they were were. In 1 Peter 2.9, Christians learn that we too are a chosen people. One of the things I want you to hear is this theme of identity today. So yeah, I'm camping on it a little bit because I want you to know something. I want you to, I want you to connect with what is going on in Scripture. Peter writes that we as Christians are royal priests. We as Christians are are a holy nation. We as Christians are God's own possession. And in the same way that the Israelites were supposed to bless others, we are to show others the goodness of God. We are God's people, set apart by him to live according to his ways. Well, who is who is God? Who is this at least in their time, this God among many? Who is this Lord among many gods? Well, he self-identifies as the Lord. That's what he calls himself. I am the Lord. He's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he's an almighty creator. And in the ten plagues against Egypt, he literally wages war against the gods of Egypt. And he demonstrated that he was above each and every single one of them. But see, God's laws don't just, they don't just tell us what rules to follow. God's laws are telling us something about his heart. God is telling us who he is. He's telling us what matters to him. And if we are his treasured possession, and he is our father, he's not just an owner of us but he gives us commands for our own good. You know, I never told my children not to touch a hot stovetop because I hated them. 
I told them that because I loved them. And I established boundaries and guardrails to save them from death. And God's heart in these Ten Commandments, in these Ten Words, is to save us, to make us His. God is out to give us abundant life, life to the fullest. So He wants to help us understand that He's not constraining and, and ruining our fun, but He's trying to give us a full life. This is what God has done. He freed his people and then he gave them a description of what the ongoing relationship would look like. Those. You are my people. This is your identity. If you want to maintain that identity, these are the rules for our relationship. This identity, actually at this point in history, was freely given. There were no strings attached. And it was up to the people to decide whether or not they were going to obey it. Again, with one exception of the commands, there is no threat of punishment. This is what my people will do. This is how my people will act. And the first rule, the first law, the first commandment is very simple. You must have no other God before me. And this is foundational to every other commandment. There are no other gods. And if you put anything or anyone in his place, you are violating this commandment. So how do we honor it? How do we, how do we become obedient to that very first command? Well, number one, we worship God exclusively. While the other commands talk about things you should do or you shouldn't do, this particular commandment is talking about a relationship. And when Ann and I got married, one of the things that, that we said to one another in our vows were that we would prefer one another. Like, that was my vow. I'm going to prefer Ann over all of the, of the harem of women that want to be with me, right? That was not reality, Okay, But when we hear that text, right, or we hear that, like, I'm going to prefer Anne above all others. Like, we ha- in our mind, we kind of, like, have this implication that there's this whole other group of people. No, when I'm saying that I prefer Anne over any other people, it meant that there was no harem of women who wanted to be with me. There was no one else. She's... It. She's my preference above everyone else because there is no one else. And in the same way, God is telling the Israelites that there is no one else. We see this in Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Athens, and after spending time observing all of their shrines and all of their altars, he says this. He's having this conversation, this dialogue with the people of Athens. And Paul says this. I've seen your shrines, I've seen your altars, and I even saw one that had an inscription to an unknown God. And I love it. Paul says, let me tell you about him. 
He made everything, and he doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not an idol made of wood or stone. He is God, and you ought to worship him alone. See, there are no other gods to be worshipped besides the Lord. We want to prefer him to the non-existent others. So here's the second way that we can honor this first command. We can shun all of our idolatry. We shun all of our idolatry. We don't add anything to God, worshiping it alongside him, and we're going to spend our time talking more about idolatry next week. We shun idols. And here's the third way that we honor this command. We we turn to Jesus alone. We turn to Christ alone. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And in doing so, he transformed it by taking it upon himself and living it out completely. God came down to Mount Sinai and said, worship me alone. And then strangely, years and years and generations later, he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration and says, this, Jesus, is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus alone is the revealer of who God is. In John 14, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus or it's no one. Because there literally is no one else. Jesus is the way. The Lord God is not just some localized, regional God. He's the God of everyone. He's the God of everywhere. He's the God of every time. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus also uses the language of identity. He tells his disciples that they are to witness locally and globally. This message, the gospel, this good news, is the power of God to everyone who believes. It's not a message that's just reserved for a certain ethnic group. It's not a message that's reserved for just a certain nation state. It's the universal means of salvation for every person. This is the pathway to God is through Jesus, and it's for everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or an American, or a Mexican, or a Russian, if you're Kenyan, if you're a believer, or an unbeliever, he's the way. If you're educated and uneducated, if you're young or old, if you're men or women, he is the way. He alone is the way. And our mission is to proclaim him as Lord over the whole world, He's not a Western God. He's not a private God. But he is the Lord of all people. You'll see these questions also in your bulletin. According to John Calvin's commentary on this first commandment, he says that we owe God four things. Our adoration, our trust, our invocation, and our thankfulness. And if you want to know what God is your functional deity, 
What God work, what, what item, what person, what object works as your God, you could ask yourself these four questions. Who or what receives your highest praise? What do you talk about all the time? Who or what do you count on when you have a need? Who or what always comes through for you? Who do you call upon? Where do you go for answers? And lastly, who or what do you thank? The gods that we worship and serve, they give us our moral code. And sometimes that code is sociological in nature because of the nature of our gods. I love this quote by Sam Rayner that I saw last week. In order to be delivered by God, you must be delivered from sin. And true deliverance means accepting salvation on God's terms. And for the people who had just come out of 400 years of slavery, these were the terms. These were the rules. God delivered them. He said, if you're going to be my people, you'll follow them. That's the contract. That's the explanation. That's the covenant. And this is where we started, because this is about being raised from the dead. And I long for the day that every single one of us acknowledges the reality of who God is and what he's calling us to do and what he's calling us to be. I'm excited for what God is going to say to us throughout this series, throughout this study. And my hope is each week you'll be ready to receive what God has for you, just like Shane talked about earlier. Can we pray? God, as these, as these words that are seemingly thousands of years old wash over us, we are tempted to look at them in sociological terms. We're tempted to, to write them off as too hard We're tempted to say wrong things like, well, Jesus dissolved the law so we don't have to keep these old rules. We live in grace. But there is so much more going on in these words than, than those things. I ask God that we would see you at work in them even now. We would see them for the value and the promise and the hope and the way that they point to your son, Jesus. I ask that this week as we, as we go through our lives, that we will take, take time to, to reflect on the functional gods that exist in our lives. The things that we pay homage to the things that we worship that aren't you. Help us to accept you as the only God.
Help us to remember that you rescued us from the slavery of sin. And to be in relationship with you is to submit to your role in our lives, to submit to the fact that you delivered us. And we want to do that well. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.